0: got something where you may have a sore arm and may feel a little tired for a day or two but after the two doses you have a high level of protection and in time I think that's going to help us move forward to resuming our normal lives.
1: Welcome to the Vermont Conversation, I'm David Goodman. This week Vermont marked two milestones in the COVID-19 pandemic. On a somber note, Vermont saw its 100th death from COVID-19 since the pandemic first appeared in the state nine months ago. This grim milestone occurred opposite a hopeful one. On Tuesday, an emergency department nurse at the University of Vermont Medical Center became the first person in Vermont to receive a COVID-19 vaccination. Thousands of Vermonters will be vaccinated by the end of this month as the first shipments of vaccine arrive health commissioner Dr. Mark Levine said, quote, this is a pivotal moment, one that marks the beginning of the end of the pandemic, close quote. But he tempered his message by noting that it will take months for the vaccine to bring COVID-19 under control and people must continue to be vigilant. Levine warned, quote, I can't emphasize enough the importance of everyone keeping up their efforts to protect themselves and prevent spread of the virus, close quote. My guest today is Christine Finley, the Immunization Program Manager at the Vermont Department of Health, who's helping to coordinate the state's COVID-19 vaccination program. Christine Finley, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thank you. Um, So this is a historic week in Vermont. We have just begun administering the COVID vaccine. Talk about who is first in line to get these vaccines this week.
0: So nationally, um, there's been a lot of work to determine uh, who would be first in line to get vaccines because we've known for a long time that there would initially be some limited availability of vaccine. And then as more vaccines come on the market, it will increase. As part of that process, the National Academies on Science, Engineering, and Medicine um, created what was known as an equitable allocation framework to provide guidance for states to look at. And then the CDC Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices has reviewed that, and they made recommendations identifying that it, would be, uh, that it should be um, healthcare workers with a focus on direct contact with patients, as well as long-term care residents and staff. And that was really just finalized um, November 23rd. In Vermont, there's been a process where the um, health department has a Vermont um, COVID-19 implementation advisory committee with broad representation across uh, many groups, groups representing a number of agencies and areas of the state. And um, they then took that guidance and provided Vermont specific guidance. And that's um, that's typical, that's what's happened in every state. So in Vermont and phase, what we call phase 1A or the first group will be healthcare workers who are likely to be exposed to or treat COVID-19 patients. And one of the first ones there is the long-term care um, staff but also residents are included in this. And that's partly because of the the toll that we've seen it taking on our residents, long-term care facilities, particularly skilled nursing facilities. The next area that we're looking at is clinical and support staff that have patient contact in those settings that really are at high risk for uh, being in contact with COVID-19 patients. And that's those working in the emergency department, the ICU, or um, out in the community providing care to COVID patients. And also EMS frontline workers. And then also home healthcare clinical staff and caregivers and um, other healthcare givers who have patient contact. And so a real focus is Let's take care of those people that are in direct contact with our patients.
1: Now, are all, so for example, with EMS, EMTs, uh, not all of them are alike. You have ski patrollers who are EMTs, and you have people running on ambulances in busy cities who are EMTs. So, do you distinguish between those?
0: Yes. One of the things is um, through our emergency medical services division, um, there was outreach to all the groups to identify those who are active EMTs.
1: But an active EMT could be somebody, for example, working on a ski patrol.
0: Yes. In fact, in Stowe, it often is.
1: Um, does that make sense that, that they would, you know, folks working in an outdoor setting like that would still be in that first group of, of uh, or second group of people to get the vaccine?
0: Let me say that oftentimes if if someone is an active EMT, they may be doing uh, ambulance work and ski patrol. Oftentimes I doubt that they, they, you know, that it's only that. I think there was a decision that with each group you looked at, you could spend, um, you could really try and fine tune each level. um, And you have to look at what the ultimate gain is going to be by that. And so identifying active, I think, is um, what was determined to be the best way to do that and move forward.
1: There's a lot of talk about equity in this process that the people who are hardest hit by the COVID pandemic include communities of color, essential workers who are often from low-income communities, uh, incarcerated people. How are you ensuring in Vermont that those communities are at the front of the line?
0: I think that's an excellent question. And um, what we have is that the health department, we have a health equity and community work group that's been working on this. Some of the things that they're doing is convening listening systems, listening um, sessions with specific priority populations. they are visiting existing coalitions such as the multilingual task force and the chronic disease and disability advisory group, and the racial equity task force to seek recommendations and feedback. Um, I know they're, I think they've already sent a survey to um, relative partners to try and gather some um, opinions and preferences about vaccines. Uh, I know they're working together with some some, uh, people that are doing research at the um, uh, University of Vermont College of Medicine, and they're trying to employ that feedback from recent cultural broker focus groups that they've done. Um, with new Americans into their planning. So they're they're working on a number of different angles, and we recognize that this is um, a real important area that we need to um, delve into further and actually put some action to it.
1: So a lot of people are wondering uh, with great concern about how do they get on a list? Um, they may have health concerns of their own, about their own vulnerability, or perhaps interactions with an older relative. Um, where does this magic list live, and how does one get on it?
0: So there is no magic list at this time. One of the things that's being done today is um, we're making sure that the hospitals who have agreed to vaccinate healthcare workers in their areas um, have the list of of those healthcare workers. Um, and when I talk about that, I'm talking broadly: dentists, physical therapists, mental health. Uh, That may have um, direct contact with patients so that they can reach out to them once the vaccine becomes more widely available and we can move on to the next phase. um, We will be communicating that broadly right now, one of the things that hasn't been determined in Vermont is will the next phase that we focus on be the the frontline workers, or will it be those. that are 65 and older and those less than 65 that might have chronic diseases. And the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices on the national level is going to weigh in on this on Sunday. And we're looking to see some feedback. Probably um, we'll be moving through both of those groups because we anticipate a second vaccine coming onto the market and being shipped um, as early as this Sunday. Um, so uh, I would say standby for communication one of the other things I would say is that we're looking at um, trying to ensure that we can make the vaccine available at the venues at which people commonly seek vaccine or would be most likely to be able to seek it while while ensuring that we do social distancing so we've enrolled um, pharmacies in the program we've enrolled our primary care providers and we're working through that to make sure that when we have vaccine we can make it widely available
1: so generally it's through your own healthcare providers at the short version of how you get on a list. <laughs> um, there is no,
0: you don't need to wait, and There is no list at this point that healthcare providers are keeping. Let's just say, for instance, that if it's uh, the next group is those 65 years and older and those with chronic disease, um, that one, it would be widely communicated to um open mass vaccination clinics meeting the social distancing and protection guidance would be likely provided. And um, you may get a direct um, communication from your primary care provider, but I can't speak specifically to what each primary care provider would do.
1: Mm -hmm. So um, now that vaccines are being given widely in the UK and are starting in the US, have we learned anything new about uh, the vaccines how people are re- responding and whatnot that we didn't know a month ago
0: i think the one thing that we've learned is that um for people that have had a severe rea- allergic reaction in the past and are um it, there's the two cases that we saw in um in the uk where two patients that did carry epipens and it had a severe allergic reaction um, had a response to it and so that's being of course what you see in, in the studies before it becomes available for use, and then what you see when you open it widely to population, you may see very rare effects that you wouldn't have seen. So this Pfizer vaccine that came out this week was studied in about 44,000 individuals, which is, which is pretty good. Um, and that's a, that's a big study for that. But when you open it up and you imagine what we're seeing right now, more rare pieces might come out. I so, think one of the pieces I want to address with that, though, is there has been concerns based on um, all the stories in the news about, oh, if I, if I have um, any type of allergic reaction, you know, what should I do? And the CDC made it very clear over the weekend that um, you should proceed with vaccination if you have typical allergies where you've got a history of, you know, food allergies or um, a- animal allergies or latex that that's all okay. And they've provided some very clear guidance on that for those that are administering vaccines to review.
1: So what allergies are not okay? Any history of
0: like a severe allergic reaction, what we call anaphylaxis, of, you know, where you might have trouble breathing um, to any component of um, of the Pfizer vaccine is one, that that's an absolute contraindication. But a precaution would be if you've had an allergic reaction to another vaccine, so any other vaccine, or a history of a severe allergic reaction to some medicine that was injected to you. And so that's that that's a precaution, and that's worth talking over with your doctor.
1: So we're hearing that uh, the efficacy of these first two vaccines, Pfizer and, I guess, Moderna is maybe approved this week. Um, you know, are in the mid-90s, 95%, that kind of thing. Uh, how does that compare to the routine immunizations that you oversee normally?
0: That's about as, as, as great as you can have it. Um, in fact, the FDA had set the bar that in order for a, a COVID-19 vaccine to be approved, it had to be at least 50% effective. Um, we see variability in vaccines. We know that um, for instance, the hepatitis A vaccine, the MM, the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine, they're up there in the 95% effective rate too. There, there's some that are very good. And that's where we want to see them all. Um, but we also know that something like the the Tdap, the, the vaccine that prevents against pertussis, that can be 60 or 70%. And then of course, there's the issues with the flu vaccine, where it um, they identify what they believe will be circulating viruses the year before, and so sometimes they, they get it right, and sometimes it changes, and so we've seen effectiveness there ranging from, I would say, 20% to 80%, so to be able to have a consistent 95% is, uh, is a dream at this point, point. and what we need, we need a game-changer.
1: What is it about this vaccine that, I mean, that is extraordinary. It's basically just about everybody will, um, in theory, I guess, be prevented from getting COVID if they get this vaccine. So why has this vaccine been as effective as it has, given what you've just described, that many vaccines aren't? So um, for many vaccines, um, there's different what we call uh,
0: platforms or the way that the way that they're made. You know, we, we know there's... Um, killed vaccines or um, um, live vaccines, this is different. And this is a technology that's being, been looked at for about 20 years, but in, but they there was challenges in how to keep it viable, how to make it work. And in the last 10 years, there's been technological advances as they worked on vaccines for Zika and Ebola and different things. And so this, this basically came at the right time where there were technical, technological advances it's, um, I've heard it described as a a pretty simple vaccine to make. And so, um, you know, for once um, in the pandemic, it feels like a lot of things haven't aligned to be at the right place at the right time. But in this case, it may be that things did align.
1: So as somebody who's worked in this world of vaccines for many years, when COVID first uh, came to our shores and Vermonters started getting infected, what did you realistically think would be a time frame for when we'd be actually putting a needle in people's arms?
0: Um, it's interesting. A, a couple months ago, or maybe a little bit longer, the CDC on a call said to us, "Be ready for a vaccine to come as early as late November." And everybody on the call said, "Are you kidding me?" I mean, no one could believe that. And in, in fact, some of the docs I talked with here said, "Ah, that's just that's that that's a spin." And so. Um, I have to say that many have had to come around because um it's wonderful that we've gotten it this quickly but it, it, it normally to bring a vaccine to market is is many many years. I think you've often heard they say that the measles mumps and rubella came in 4 years and that was that, that broke all records. So this is um yeah this is fortunate.
1: Hmm. Um Let's get back to the nuts and bolts of this. What about people who've had COVID? Do they or should they be getting a vaccine?
0: Yes. And that's a thank you for asking that, because I think that's really important um, that people. So what we want to make sure is that vaccination would be offered to persons regardless of whether they had symptomatic or asymptomatic um, infection. And part of the reason for that is uh, we know that We don't know how long people that have had infection are protected. And the data from the trials that have been done on the vaccine suggests that it's safe and efficacious in those persons that have had COVID. Hmm.
1: We're also hearing that uh, guidance that once you get a vaccine, you still need to keep wearing a mask and social distance. Why is that? Everybody's kind of hoping and praying that that's over. They get to rip those masks off and throw them in the trash. Maybe wash them, (laughs) but anyways. um, Part of it is that because,
0: well, I think that we will see something changing in time. But I think for right now, without an understanding of um, when it was studied, the vaccines were looked at, does it prevent disease and does it prevent um, severe disease? One of the things that wasn't able to be studied at that point, but is being studied is does it prevent transmission of disease? So might there still be viral particles in in your nose that you might be able to spread? That is under, that is being looked at right now. But until we know more, have more data on how it impacts the transmission of disease and given the very, severe situation that we're in right now, I don't think anyone's comfortable with saying throw it out. And besides, it's winter and it's cold in Vermont. It keeps you warmer.
1: (laughs) Now, come on, Chris, they freeze those masks. We're about to find (laughs) out the limitations of masks in winter. Um, If you're just joining us, we're talking with Christine Finley. She is the Immunization Program Manager of the at the Vermont Department of Health. Um, when do you expect that all Vermonters who want a vaccine will be able to get the vaccine?
0: Let me get my crystal ball out. Um, it will depend on the amount of vaccine that, first of all, let me just say what what it will depend on. We need to, um, how many vaccines that we have available and the amount of vaccine that we have. And so we expect a second vaccine to come on the market Um, or to be available probably by next week. We know that the United States recently agreed to purchase 50 more million doses from that manufacturer, so that will help the picture. This is the Moderna vaccine. This is the Moderna. We know that there's two other vaccines, the AstraZeneca and the Johnson & Johnson one that may be um, coming out as early as the end of January or February. So first, it's the amount that we have the second is we're really encouraging people to be vaccinated because I think this is a way forward out of the pandemic but we don't know uh quite yet what the uptake will be. Will it be 95%? Will it be 85%? What will it be and so that will also address the uh, that I am I've heard on the national level some understanding that everybody should have access by the second quarter of um 2021. So I would hope that that's true. But um, again, I, I'm I'm not privy to the manufacturing details right now.
1: So as, as the person who oversees, you know, all the routine vaccination programs in Vermont of school-age kids and such, um, you're aware of pockets of the community where there's tremendous vaccine hesitancy or where anti-vax movement is strong. Um, give us a sense of, you know, places in Vermont where, uh, you know, there are relatively low rates of vaccination in the schools, and what do you expect the impact of vaccine hesitancy or the anti-vax movement is going to be around COVID? Uh,
0: First of all, I'd say that the hesitancy within schools is dynamic and changing, and to try and characterize one place or another, um, it may change within a year, and we've seen some changes. I don't have the data in front of me, but I want to say that for I'm pretty sure this is right for um last year with the reporting for kindergarten through twelfth grade ninety four percent of um all students and that's public and private had met all the requirements for vaccine and um we were were very pleased with that i mean that that's what we need to do to prevent the spread of measles and other infectious diseases within schools I think that um Some of the time, what's really important is to get to address the misinformation that's out there. I think there are some parents that are hesitant and and everyone wants to protect their child and they want the best for their child. And so some parents are hesitant. They may have read misinformation. They may have been uncertain about something. And so what we need to do is have honest conversations where we discuss the safety and discuss the need for it so that they can understand that. But I do think that it is the norm that the majority of all children are vaccinated. And I, I actually think um, in some way, this understanding of how a vaccine can turn around something like a pandemic might help people to understand it. I'll just say that for, for many young parents, they haven't seen a child with meningitis due to Haemophilus influenza B, which Hib is that's one vaccine. And they may not have seen a child hospitalized with pneumonia due to measles, um very very sick children and so sometimes the the perception of risk if you've never seen those diseases versus reading some type of safety concern that might raise you 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 assess your risk differently
1: what do you say to people who are reluctant to get this new vaccine um i think that's an excellent question
0: First of all, the safety data is has been very good in um, speaking, not only um, listening to the national stuff, but speaking with um, doctors that work with vaccine in Vermont. This is a safe and effective vaccine. We know that there's, um, and, and people can expect if they get the vaccine within one to two days, they may have soreness at the site where they get it. We also see that um, they may have, um, some of the most common things that we saw reported were fatigue, uh, headache, muscle or joint pain. Um, and in rare cases a fever. Now, most of that ended in, uh, 48 hours or two days. Um, and I think you need to weigh that against what's going on with COVID and the risk of COVID is serious. I think you can see that by looking at the, um, Growing number of deaths and hospitalizations in the U.S., and so you've got something where you may have a sore arm and may feel a little tired um, for a day or two, but after the two doses, you have a high level of protection. And in time, I think that that's going to help us move forward to resuming our normal lives.
1: Hmm. Has the anti-vax movement, which uh, you know has, is quite active there, has it had a big impact in Vermont? First of
0: all, I wouldn't phrase it as anti vax. I, I would phrase it as a vaccine hesitancy because um, I think a lot of times there, there's very few people that are completely, you know, just ardently opposed to vaccines. And that's often identified as less than 2% or so. So, um, but I also think that um, uh, the size of the group may seem different depending on how vocal people are. But I do think there is some vaccine hesitancy. And I think that there's been work not only on the part of the Department of Health, but more importantly, on the part of the primary care providers, the physicians, nurse practitioners, PAs that are working and having these conversations with parents to help them better understand it. And then I also think that there's there's some groups of um, people that want to ensure there's herd immunity, so their children, who uh, you know, um, who may be ill. Or just recognizing the importance in society are protected. So there's really been a lot of good communication in the you know conversation in the communities going on, as well as I can't um, I can't say enough about how much primary care providers have done to communicate the importance of vaccines.
1: What's your biggest concern uh, as we go forward and ramp up the the COVID vaccine program? Um, what what keeps you up at night? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Oh, nothing. Um,
0: <laughs> let's see. I think there's a lot of logistical challenges that need to be worked out when you've got different vaccines coming out at the same time. I want to make sure that those providing the vaccines have all the, have the adequate time for training and, um, so that they fully understand what they're doing and they're confident. I want to make sure that people receiving the vaccine have had the information that they need to make an informed decision and aren't feeling pushed to something uh, that they need. And and logistically, I think expectations are extremely high, while um, a lot of this is being built at the same time. An example is I, you know, tell you that the advisory committee at CDC hasn't identified, you know, officially. What that one phase one B is at the same time that the vaccine is rolling out. So I would ask for, um, I would say that you know, will there will be some bumps in the road? We are working as hard as we can to prevent those bumps, but but ask for people to understand that a lot is happening at the same time.
1: Okay. Well, Christine Finley, I want to thank you for joining us this week on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you, Dave. Christine Finley is the Immunization Program Manager at the Vermont Department of Health.